We have two more speakers to come. Uh, very excited. Our first speaker to come, our next speaker, our fourth speaker, uh, is Dave Kaplan. He's undertaking a PhD in neuroscience at the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. He investigates neural networks and computational neuroscience. He hopes one day to construct a brain in a Petri dish, even if he has to donate his own. <laughs> Dave. Thank you, Aaron. All right. I'd like to talk tonight about two central figures of an important period in the history of neuroscience. Progress in science is dependent upon the iterative interplay between theory and experiments. A scientist generates a theory of how a system works and then tries to validate this theory through experiments. This idealized description of science is rarely enacted. But the two scientists I'll be discussing this evening successfully use this formula to discover and prove what would become one of the fundamental dogmas of neurophysiology. In 1963, Alan Hodgkin and Andrew Huxley were awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine or Physiology. This marked the culmination of a 20-year collaboration that definitively described the fundamental signaling unit of the central nervous system. Now to explain, each of your brains is an elaborate network of about 80 billion electrically active cells. Each of those cells receives inputs from on average 10,000 other cells. Information about the world around you and your internal state is encoded uh, in patterns of signals traveling between those cells. Those signals are called action potentials. And before Hodgkin and Huxley, no one, no one knew exactly what they were or what they looked like. Andrew Huxley came from a prominent English family. His brother, uh, sorry, his half-brother was the writer Aldous Huxley. His other half-brother was Julian Huxley, the biologist and founder of the World Wildlife Fund. Most notably, however, his grandfather was Thomas Henry Huxley, who is better remembered as Darwin's bulldog. Thomas Huxley was a close friend of Charles Darwin and a fervent advocate of his, of his theory of evolution. As the story goes, Huxley persuaded Darwin to publish his theory despite Darwin's own spiritual conflict over the implications of his work to the biblical description of the origins of life. By comparison, Hodgkin's family was remarkably unremarkable. So I won't dwell on them. No, no offense if any of them are here. <laughs> the pair began their work together in 1939 and in that year were able to generate a result that no one had previously seen. They recorded an action potential. This result was then published in the October edition of the scientific journal Nature. Any scientists in the room will know what the implications are of publishing in Nature. For the non-scientists, it's probably the equivalent to an AFL player kicking a match-winning goal. I'm not really sure if that analogy holds up because I'm a scientist and consequently have no knowledge or interest in football. <laughs> but let's assume it makes sense. Scientists, you'll also take great comfort in learning that at the time of making the first recording of an action potential and publishing the result in Nature, Huxley was only 22 years old and Hodgkin was a whopping 25. 
To relate back to the previous analogy, that's like an AFL player kicking a match-winning goal at the age of eight. <laughs> this monumental paper, which would later become a prominent part of neuroscientific doctrine, was a mere one page long and had two figures in it. The second of these figures was a plot of the action potential that they recorded, showing a rapid fluctuation of the voltage across a cell membrane as the, sing as the signal traveled down the nerve. The first figure was a photograph of the experimental setup that they used. Like any significant scientific achievement, this could not have happened without the help of a squid. <laughs> I'll explain. <laughs> Today, if you want to record the electrical activity at a neuron, you take an incredibly sharp electrode connected to a specialized signal amplifier and jab the tip of the electrode into the cell under a, powerful, under a powerful microscope. The sharp electrode and the microscope are necessary because the typical mammalian neuron has a cell body with a diameter of about 20 to 50 micrometers. That's about 50 millionths of a meter. However, in 1939, much of this equipment hadn't been invented. So Hodgkin and Huxley were forced to find a neuron that was large enough to study using the equipment that they did have. Here's, here, uh, here's where the squid comes in. Anyone here who has tried to attack a squid can no doubt confirm that when you do so, the squid will rapidly rocket away from you, releasing a, a cloud of ink behind it. This is achieved through a specialized method of jet propulsion that the squid has evolved. Uh, between the squid's tentacles is a siphon that fills up with water, and when the squid needs to move fast, the siphon is instantly, con uh, sorry, instantly contracts forcing the water out, creating a jet stream that propels it away from the predator. It's kind of like when you have a balloon full of air and you let it go. The balloon will shoot off as the air is forced out. To control this siphon, the squid has a nerve that can conduct signals astonishingly quickly. This fast conduction is possible due to the relatively huge diameter of the nerve. Uh, our nerve cells have fibers that are about one micrometer in diameter. Well, the squid giant axon is about one, one millimeter in diameter, which is a thousand times larger than ours. This means it can be seen and dissected out, and dissected out with the naked eye um, and tools. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's quite important. <laughs> um, this unusually large nerve cell is there for a perfect preparation for investigation by neurophysiologists using the rudimentary tools available in the mid-20th century. By threading a silver wire through the squid giant axon, Hodgkin and Huxley were able to record the action potential as it traveled along the nerve. However, this only worked when the nerve was bathed in seawater. By modifying the composition of the seawater, they discovered that the change in voltage they had measured was due to the movement of sodium ions into the cell. For those unfamiliar, an ion is an atom or molecule that with an uneven number of protons and electrons, giving it an electrical charge. Chemists and physicists feel free to correct. <laughs> when these charged particles accumulate on one side of a membrane, they create a voltage difference. If they briefly switch sides, they reverse the voltage, and this brief reversal of voltage is the action potential. This was the first study of what would prove to be a long and powerful co collaboration. Yet before it could, re could really take swing, 
it was interrupted by the onset of the Second World War. When both Hodgkin and Huxley were, were recruited for the war effort, given their extensive knowledge and experience with squid neurophysiology, it only made sense that they be employed to research and build radars for the Allied forces. <laughs> Both men therefore spent the war in the presence of engineers and physicists, temporarily abandoning neurophysiology and delving into the world of applied physics. In 1946, when the war ended, they returned to their lab at a marine biology research station in Plymouth with the hope of picking up where they had left off. But upon return, they faced two major challenges. One, Plymouth had been heavily bombed during the war and the lab had to be rebuilt. And arguably a more pressing issue, after five years hiatus from research, both men had forgotten much of their neurophysiology. As Hodgkin put it, after five years working as a physicist, I had little use for biological generalizations and preferred physiochemical approaches to physiology. However, it was precisely this deviation from pure physiology that would enable them to develop the insights that would lead to their most significant discovery yet. At this time, the big question consuming neurophysiologists was how the action potential traveled down nerve fibers. Their work before the war had confirmed that the charge was carried by sodium ions, but the signal seemed to propagate through some active processes suggesting there was, more to, there was more to it than sodium ions running along the length of the axon. With their newly acquired understanding of physics, Hodgkin and Huxley were able to cleverly manipulate the electrical properties of the squid giant axon, teasing apart the different processes involved in the generation of an action potential. Through a series of profoundly er elegant experiments, they were then able to construct a set of equations that could be used to quantitatively model the electrical properties of the axon. This work would take them six years to complete and would be published over a series of five papers in the journal Physiology in 1952. As opposed to their paper in Nature, which was just a single page, these five papers came to a total of 130 pages. The last of them is an engaging 45 pages long. I recommend it to anyone having trouble sleeping. <laughs> The only way you'd get an article of 45 pages published in the Journal of Physiology today is if you owned the journal. <laughs> Hodgkin and Huxley's work did a lot more than just generate a series of monstrous papers. In its theoretical elegance, it predicted the, the existence of ion channels, small proteins embedded in the surface of excitable cells that would be responsible for the cell's complex biophysics. These proteins would only be discovered more than a decade later. Further, the mathematical description of neuronal biophysics, which they derived, is still used today, 60 years down the track. The Human Brain Project, which has just been awarded a billion euros to create a computational model of the human brain, will use the Hodgkin-Huxley equations to describe the dynamics of neuronal signaling. These equations are also used in a much, much more significant project that will likely result in another paradigm shift deepening our understanding of the brain. That is, my PhD. <laughs> in today's world of neurophysiology, we have at our disposal an astounding range of experimental tools. We now have the technology to, man to manipulate specific subtypes of neurons with light, or turn the brain transparent to reveal the complexity of the circuitry. 
we can see the signals moving through the, uh, through the nervous system using voltage-sensitive fluorescent dyes or genetically implanted fluorescent proteins. We have robots that can measure the electrical activity of dozens of cells simultaneously with minimal human intervention and supercomputers that can simulate the activity of extensive neural networks. With such a wide variety of techniques, if, if we want to know something, something about the brain, we can find the right tool and ask it directly. By contrast, Hodgkin and Huxley represent a time when revealing nature's, nature's secrets involved a complex dance between sophisticated theory and elegant experiments. And Hodgkin and Huxley were masters of that dance. Thank you. Thank you.